Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the ongoing instruction your word gives us. We're thankful for the way in which it points us to consider the beauty of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would draw our hearts near to you. I pray that you would cause us to contemplate the use of the days you've granted us. May we make the most effective use of the time that you have gifted us with. May we be good stewards. As we often speak of stewardship, we think of it in regards to financial considerations. But our time is just as much as stewardship. So I pray that you would cause us to reflect upon this a little bit even more this morning. And cause us to glory in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. As we continue our Harmony of the Gospels, we're reminded that Jesus was no stranger to conflict. He explained in Matthew 10, verse 34, Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He explained that division would be a necessary consequence of his coming. He said in Luke 12:52, from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. He knew the implications of his ministry would to extend to such an extent that the divide would even happen among the closest of earthly relationships. He says, even sons against fathers and fathers against sons and daughters against mothers and mothers against daughters. But why? Why does Jesus say that his coming brings the necessary consequence of such, such a, a large amount of conflict? Why did the one through whom peace with God becomes possible bring about such division among men? Ephesians 6.12, I think, provides an indication as to what's going on here. You understand that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle in this world is instead against the rulers, against the powers, 
against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see, there are two kingdoms at war with one another. There is God's kingdom, and then there is a sham ruler who is putting forth his own kingdom, that of Satan. And the adversary of men's souls, the devil, we're told, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. He's blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And those in darkness, Jesus says, hate the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. What's so strange about the situation is that those who rail against Christ and think that they've achieved some sort of freedom in their rebellion against God are in reality, quote, snared by the devil and being held captive by him to do his will. There really is only one of two positions that you can be in. It's either that of slavery to God, slavery to righteousness, or slavery to the devil, slavery to unrighteousness. It's one or the other. And freedom from one thing means slavery to the other. Have you ever found it strange that so many atheists will expend so much energy hating the God they claim doesn't exist? You notice that? I mean, if God doesn't exist to an atheist, why does he spend his whole life railing against religion? I mean, why not just let people, you know, in their, in their perspective, why not people just let people believe their fairy tales? Why is it that there's so much venomance, uh, vengeance and hatred and anger against those who love God from those who say there isn't a God at all? Well, I think it's just another manifestation of the ongoing spiritual conflict that we're all in. There is no neutrality in this world. You're either by nature still a child of wrath, the consequence of being born as a descendant of Adam and sharing in the guilt of the fall of mankind, or you've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. You've been for- forgiven of your sin and granted Christ's perfect righteousness. It's one or the other. There is no place of neutrality in this regard. Jesus says to the rebellious Religious leaders in John 8, remember he's here, he's speaking to the Pharisees and stuff, and he says to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. Listen, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because the truth is not in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. These are really strong words. Remember who Jesus is referring to here. He's talking to the religious leaders and he says to them that you're of your father, the devil. You see, you've either been redeemed and therefore reconciled with your heavenly father or you're still under slavery to the devil. There is no other place for you to be. So the struggle that we continue to see in the ministry of Christ is really just an illustration of the struggle that all of mankind is perpetually involved in. There is a war raging for men's souls. And yes, oftentimes it's an invisible war, a war that isn't immediately perceptible to our eyes. But it's a war nonetheless, and this war has massive consequences. It's far past time for us who are in Christ from becoming entangled in the affairs of this world, in the affairs of everyday life. 
Paul tells young Timothy, he says, be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Don't get entangled in civilian affairs. Recognize that we're at war. And we must adopt a wartime mentality. Yet, the way of this world is to try to push away from any contemplation in that regard. The world wants to attempt to fit us into its mold, to distract our attention away from the glory of God, to divert our attention away from spiritual realities, to look at just the surface of things and not contemplate the underlying spiritual reality behind what's going on. It's why it's so important for us to have a continual diet of Bible study and prayer and attending the preaching of the Word of God to remind us of the spiritual realities that are all around us. You see, the conflict that Jesus encountered was, was due to this very reality, that there is a spiritual reality behind everything that was going on. I mean, why so much hatred towards one who is healing people and, pre- and preaching truth and people were awed by the authority that he spoke with? Why so much hatred for this one who came to reconcile sinful men with a holy God? See the tragic state of affairs when the supposed people of God become greater experts at recognizing subtle nuances in earthly affairs. And meanwhile, they are completely blind to the spiritual realities that are all about us. Jesus denounced that sort of hypocrisy in the religious leaders of his day in Luke 12, just before the passage we're looking at here, in Luke 12, 54 through 56, he, he pretty much tells them, you guys make better weathermen than religious leaders. <laughs> you can tell things about the nature of how the sky looks and come to rightful conclusions about that way quicker than you can about spiritual realities that are going on. You see, the denseness of Israel's religious leaders to spiritual things was appalling to Jesus. That's why I think, and this is a passage we looked at some time ago, is actually one of those moments where I skipped out of our chronological ordering of Gospel Harmony because we came to the 10-year anniversary of September 11th. And so we already, already preached on Luke 13, 1 through 9, and the reason why I'm skipping over those verses here this morning. But in those verses, interestingly enough, Jesus... Uh, calls these religious leaders and warns them that rather than judging the relative sinfulness of those who died due to political slaughters or those who died due to building collapses, he tells them and said, you must repent, otherwise you will too likewise perish. They would only have so much time. Jesus tells a little parable. Judgment is soon coming. And yet it seems that at every turn, The Pharisees and scribes and synagogue officials opposed the work of Christ, demonstrating that that their true identity was not among the people of God. And the particular Sabbath that we come to this morning is one more such example. Jesus draws some negative press from the religious populace once again for his activity. And the setting here becomes intensely important. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 tells us, And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus is no stranger to the religious leaders objecting to Jesus' activity whenever it fell on the Sabbath. In Matthew 12, Mark 2, and Luke 6, all of those are parallel passages, record how the Pharisees objected that Jesus' disciples, remember this occasion, were plucking grain on the Sabbath. 
Now, there was nothing in the Old Testament law that would have said that was unlawful. But the rabbinical codes had made such things, declared such things as unlawful. Jesus responds to their objection by appealing to the actions of David in the Old Testament, if you remember that. In in particular, he's bringing up the idea of acts of necessity. Acts of necessity were always allowed and permissible on the Sabbath. He also mentions the work of the priests in the temple. In other words, acts of worship unto God are also acceptable for the Sabbath. Jesus goes on to say, make direct uh, statement about himself. He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. It's all about me. And then Jesus proceeds into the synagogue. After he proceeds into the synagogue and then he heals a man with a withered hand. And everybody that's in attendance there, all these religious leaders are looking on, trying to find some way to accuse him of wrongdoing. And so they're chomping at the bit as Jesus heals this man with a withered hand. Jesus asks the religious leaders, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? He asks, what man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you'll not take hold of it and lift it out. Now, argument from lesser to greater That's the case. How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. When Jesus makes these statements and heals this man with a withered hand, Jesus' adversaries are filled with rage as they discuss together what they might do with this Jesus. You see, that interaction was much earlier in Jesus' ministry. I mean, it was while he was in Galilee, far away from Jerusalem and Judea. I mean, perhaps news of all the things that Jesus was doing hadn't yet circulated very well. Perhaps they weren't familiar with all the miracles he performed and all the truth that he had proclaimed. I mean, now Jesus had further established himself through many signs and wonders. His unique authority had been demonstrated time and time again. And now he's come near to Jerusalem. So surely we might expect for the atmosphere by now to have changed, right? I mean, before, maybe it was just some amount of ignorance. They just didn't get it. But here, here's Jesus. And now we come to another Sabbath. And Jesus performs another miracle. Sadly, all of the passage before us this morning manifests that the religious leaders are as resolute as ever in their resisting of Christ. And yet again, right at the center of the controversy is one's understanding of what God desired for the Sabbath. Remember, God did provide Israel with instructions regarding the observance of the Sabbath. We had it read this morning. You notice that those were the first four of the Ten Commandments. The, the uh, command to honor the Sabbath is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. It is the last of what's considered the first law of the, t- the first table of the Ten Commandments. The first four, which are pretty much vertical in nature, the second six are kind of a little bit more horizontal in nature. And so here, the the last of those first four is this one. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. When the Ten Commandments are repeated again to Israel in Deuteronomy 5, when Moses is giving his last words to Israel, these are repeated. And and in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 5, another facet is added there. It says this, You shall remember 
that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So why was the Sabbath given to Israel? Well, it was instituted by God and it followed the pattern of the creation week. It has been noted by someone before, maybe many before, that we have some sort of thing to base um, our allotments of time. For example, we can consider the month originally off the basis of the changes of the uh, phases of the moon, right? This sort of thing. And a day can be judged by the rising and setting of the sun, right? Or by the rising to the next rising of the sun, right? So we have these sorts of things. But here's a question. From which do we get the week? Why these seven-day increments? Why do we acknowledge that? Why do we continue that? What is it based on? Is there some astronomical phenomenon that seven days becomes useful for? The answer is, there really isn't any. The answer that the Scriptures give is the reason why we continue to recognize seven days is way back with God's creative design. He did all of His creative work over six days and then He rested on the seventh. So Israel is told to observe this as a remembrance of their creator, of the one and only true God. And not only this, but as Deuteronomy 5 said, it was also meant to be a remembrance of the Lord's deliverance of them out of slavery in Egypt. Now, as is the case with so much rabbinical activity, the general principles given in the law were not seen to be sufficiently specific. So enter Enter the uh, bean counters. Enter the people who want to make, to micromanage all of the regulations that they can think of. Rather than allowing for some amount of freedom on this matter for God's people, Israel's leaders micromanage Sabbath regulations. We've spoken of the absurdity of the regulations on prior occasions, so I'm not going to provide examples of the 39 various forms of labor that were Uh, disallowed from being done on the Sabbath, along with all of the exceptions for this, that, and the other. It becomes quite ridiculous trying to imagine anyone being able to actually uh, follow through with every single one of their little regulations. The real problem in all of it was Israel's failure to understand the spirit of the law in so many cases. But this wasn't anything new in the history of Israel. Their problems with the Sabbath isn't anything new. We had read this morning also from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, where God tells Israel just how much he detests their outward, showy religion that didn't arise from love of God and didn't show itself in love for people. And so as a a result, he says, bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense, an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Yes, even when you, though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. And then we go, well, why? Why all of this? And the answer is given, your hands are covered with blood. He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. You see, the Lord is denouncing hypocritical religious exercise. The Sabbath provided an opportunity, perhaps an extended opportunity, to worship God corporately. It was never meant to serve as a tool to mask over a man's wicked 
life. Theirs was a Sabbath that God grew weary of. Sadly, I wonder how many people treat the Lord's Day in this regard, in this day. How many come to church on Sunday thinking, well, I've got my spiritual check mark and I'm going to live my life however I please the rest of the week. This is the sort of celebration that the Lord detests. God calls and wash, make yourselves clean, remove evil, cease from evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. And note that all those things, if you're pleading for the widow and you're defending the orphan and reproving the ruthless and learning to do good, are these all things that are just supposed to happen on the other six days of the week? (laughs) Are they off limits for actually engaging in any of these things on the Sabbath? Were all those acts just something for another day of the week? Or on the contrary, were they something very appropriate to be done on the Sabbath as well? Did Sabbath rest mean the cessation of all deeds entirely? Or did it, on the contrary, just mean the cessation of one's usual occupational tasks? Jesus sets out to bring a corrective to Israel regarding the Sabbath, and hopefully they'll listen this time. I think it's appropriate to consider how Jesus' words might apply to our Lord's Day activities. You are here on Sunday. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Sabbath was on Saturday. Why do we come to church on Sunday? Well, this is all a tradition commemorating the fact of when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Christians have celebrated Sunday as the time of corporate gathering through the centuries following Jesus Christ's resurrection. As the resurrection happened on Sunday, we now remember that. And you should think about that every time you wake up in the morning and come to church. It should be a remembrance all the time, but it's yet one more moment to remember the glory of the resurrection. If there were no resurrection, were men above all to be most pitied. But because of the resurrection, everything changes. And so it is for us. We celebrate and rejoice and worship corporately here on Sundays. What's been typically referred to as the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day in the commemoration of what Jesus Christ did in His death, burial, and then resurrection. Now certainly... We have to keep in mind passages in the New Testament like Romans 14, which instructs us to be on guard against judgmentalism in areas of freedom or wisdom issues. And we're told there, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And then listen to these specific applications of not being judgmental. It says, one person regards one day above another, while another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats, does so for the Lord. And he who gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat. And gives thanks to God. So, the point that's being made here, and we're looking at another passage at the end of the sermon, is that you may observe all days alike to the glory of God. And yet, you might also decide to set aside a day in seven in keeping with Sabbath principles, to worship God, edify brothers and sisters in Christ, and evangelize the lost. With this in mind, and this occasion being the very last recorded occasion where Jesus comes into a synagogue on the Sabbath, it seemed appropriate that this morning we consider three especially fitting ways to spend the Lord's Day. Three especially fitting ways to spend the Lord's Day. In a sermon entitled, The Glorious Use of the Lord's Day. Three things I want us 
to pick up on together. I want to outline them quickly here and then we'll look at them in depth. First of all, acts of compassion are especially fitted for the Lord's day. Acts of compassion are especially fitted for the Lord's day. Secondly, the promotion of freedom is especially fitted for the Lord's day. The promotion of freedom is especially fitted for the Lord's day. And thirdly, joy and delight in God is especially fitted for the Lord's day. Joy and delight in God is especially fitted for the Lord's day. Let's look at the first of these. Acts of compassion are especially fitted for the Lord's day. And in order to get at this, I want to just do a quick contrastive look at the main characters before us here in Luke 13. First of all, let's consider the unloving religious hypocrites that are are present here on this occasion. We maybe start by recognizing their lack of notice of those who are lowly, the way in which they overlook the lowly. So there's Jesus comes into the synagogue on the Sabbath and into the synagogue this Sabbath now comes a woman. We're told that she's had a spirit of disablement for some 18 years. She was bent double bent over and we're told unable to straighten herself, unable to straighten up. And it could be read here, straighten up fully or straighten up at all. Either one of those is potential for the descriptions given of her. We're not told what this woman was thinking. We're not told what she was feeling. But can you imagine what kind of situation it would be? Can we just imagine? I think sometimes we gloss over these miracles because we haven't spent enough time just contemplating the condition of the person who is suffering. Can you imagine being bent over and not able to ever straighten up? Can you imagine going about your daily routines always bent over, always walking like this and not able to straighten up? Can you imagine walking around and hardly ever getting eye contact with people? Can you imagine always seeing the ground before your feet, having, having great difficulty to look up at the sun above you or the stars at night? Can you imagine how uncomfortable it would be walking around in such a condition? Usually people who have any sort of back... Have you ever had back problems? Anybody in here had a back problem before? And if you have, you know it's painful and it's very discomforting, isn't it? It, it plagues your mind. And I can only imagine this woman... You know, 18 years can seem to go by pretty quick, can't it? Parents, can't it seem to go by pretty quick? It can. But 18 years with a condition like this, I'm sure it might have felt like a prison sentence. Try walking around bent over for a while and you'll see what I mean. But while this condition might draw out some sympathies over a long period of time, as is typically the case, she might have become quite ignored. Her particular disease would render her very short in stature, right? So literally, she would be overlooked if she was standing in a crowd of people who were standing up, right? She would be completely unnoticed by most people in the crowd. It's kind of like Nicodemus, right? man small in stature as he climbs up into the sycamore tree to try to see Jesus. Imagine your condition is one of being bent over so you have difficulty in even places of, of gathering of worship and these sorts of things. We have no specific mention of whether she was neglected by the religious leaders, but I find the response from this synagogue official extremely calloused. I think it not too hard to assume that he had spent a little time identifying with this woman's ailment. I, I doubt he spent any time walking around with her, perhaps even literally, or attempting to help her in her plight. How can I say that? Because not only, I think, is she being overlooked, but I think that there's an, 
outward lack of compassion for the crippled being demonstrated here. This synagogue ruler responds to Jesus' miraculous healing of this woman with indignation. He's angry. He's mad. But he seems to even lack courage to address Jesus directly on the matter. So instead he addresses the crowd. Isn't that interesting? I mean, he could have talked to Jesus, who's supposedly done this work on the Sabbath. But instead of talking to Jesus, he just addresses the crowd. And he says, six days are there in which it is necessary to work. Therefore, in them come to be healed and not on the Sabbath day. What a contrasted picture. This woman, who we'll see in a moment, is straightened, and then she's glorifying God. And simultaneously, the synagogue official is standing there angry, fuming, and shouting out to the crowd, don't come now for healing, come some other day. This supposed under-shepherd is angry that one of his members of his congregation has just received one of the greatest blessings of her life. He's not rejoicing with her who is rejoicing. He's mad and angry. Can you see just how ridiculous this scene is? I mean, we're immediately confronted with the fact that this religious leader does not get it. And he doesn't get it on multiple levels. He didn't understand just how marvelous this miracle was. Otherwise, he would have been rejoicing alongside that woman. He he hasn't put himself in this woman's shoes. He hasn't shared her burdens with her. Otherwise, he'd be rejoicing with that woman. He hasn't come to recognize Jesus as God's Son, the Messiah. And this is a demonstration of the power and authority of Christ. Otherwise, he would have been rejoicing alongside this woman. But I wonder how often our lack of notice of the lowly and compassion for the crippled is due similarly to a calloused and indifferent heart. Do we take the time to consider the plight of those around us? Do we care not only for those um, who are hurting physically and emotionally and socially, but also spiritually? Do we consider the needs of those around us? Do we have compassion for those who are hurting? And have we forgotten what every soul needs most critically? Have we forgotten that we too once lived, formerly lived, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest? You see, we must remember that it was purely the grace of God that saved us from our wretched position. Once you recognize how much the grace of God has been showered upon you, you will rejoice when you see the power of God releasing others. Well, we've been introduced to a synagogue ruler. And by the way, some other unloving hypocrites. Jesus, when he replies to the synagogue official, he does a direct reply to him, even though he's talking to the crowd. Jesus replies, answers him. But then he says, hypocrites. It's plural. It's like, get the flavor of what's going on here is the synagogue official is just voicing what is the opinion of many that are in attendance there. Jesus has a scathing rebuke for them. In contrast to these unloving hypocrites, we see a loving and gracious Savior, Jesus. And in contrast to them, he sees the unnoticed. This woman might have gone unnoticed by nearly everyone in the room, but we're told in verse 12, when she came to the room, Jesus saw her. You see it there, verse 12? When Jesus saw her, he takes notice of this woman who is literally overlooked by others. Jesus said in Luke 12, 6 and 7, 
Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than sparrows. The verses behind the famous song, His Eye is on the Sparrow. Any of you are familiar with the song? If God's eye is on the sparrow, then I know He watches me. You see, nothing escapes the notice of our Lord. But this is especially the case when considering the lowly. Especially the case with those who are humbled and broken under heavy burdens. Who are in desperate need. James 4.10 Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. You see, Jesus sees the neglected. Jesus sees the overlooked. Jesus sees the unseen. Have there ever been moments in your life where you felt invisible to a, to a group of people? You felt completely neglected, completely left out, completely out of the picture. The glorious reality is to know that no matter where we are, no matter how alone we might feel, we are not alone. We sang the song, You Were There, this morning from Psalm 139, and recognize it's kind of a two-edged sword, that isn't it? For those who aren't in Christ, the fact that the Lord is with them wherever they go should be a terrifying thought. Judgment is one day coming. But for those who are in Christ, there is no more blessed thought than to know that wherever we go, He's with us. As Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This loving, gracious Savior sees the unnoticed. And he, not only that, but He calls the unwanted. He calls the unwanted. Having seen this woman, Jesus then calls to her. He brings her to himself. And oh, what a blessed moment that must have been when you realize that Jesus is calling you. He's calling you. There's nothing better than to be called and drawn near to Christ. And so it is with every proclamation of the gospel. God is making his appeal through his servants Sounding forth the good news that through Jesus, men may be forgiven of their sins and put into right relationship with God, the creator and Lord of all. That's what we refer to as the outward call, the outward call, of the gospel. Evangelism really is just this making an outward call, publishing the evangel, sharing the good news far and wide. And then there is also that special inward call of God, whereby a person is drawn unto salvation. This calling results in a man or woman being born again, being granted repentance and faith in Christ. Such a person, therefore, does repent and they savingly believe upon Jesus. And oh, how marvelous that God is making a grand display of the riches of his mercy and grace by saving the lowly, by saving the lowly for his glory. I'm sure you're familiar with the words that are found in 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul calls the church at Corinth to consider their calling. Here he's referring to that special calling of God whereby they've been made believers. It says here, there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, 
so that no man may boast before God. Think about it. This woman had traveled to the synagogue, and we're going to assume this was her typical practice, without knowing that anything might be done for her condition. Certainly coming to the synagogue alone wouldn't just cure her condition. But on this day, on this occasion, Jesus was present, and he saw her need, and he called to her. J.C. Ryle has commented on this fact. He said, quote, The conduct of this suffering Jewess may well put to shame many a strong and healthy professing Christian. How many, in the full enjoyment of bodily vigor, allow the most frivolous excuses to keep them away from the house of God? How many are constantly spending the whole Sunday in idleness, pleasure-seeking, and business? How many find religious services a weariness while they attend them and feel relieved when they're over? The man who can find no pleasure in giving God one day in the week is manifestly unfit for heaven. Heaven itself is nothing but an eternal Sabbath. It is a strange oddity that people would only wonder when they're leaving a church. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, why do people even come if all they're thinking about the whole time is when do we leave? When the last time you heard someone's going to do an encore at a concert, people are like, oh no, stop, don't do an encore. When the last time you got mad when you went into triple overtime? Well, maybe you wanted your team to win, but you know, I mean, usually we love that kind of stuff. And so it shows something in our hearts. Should we not love to meet with the people of God in worshiping our Lord corporately? We're reminded of the simple instruction in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Do not forsake your own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then Jesus rescues the unable, in this case, the disabled. We've noted before the various ways in which Jesus performed healing. And in each one, he seems, each one seems so aptly fitted for the occasion. Here, Jesus speaks to this woman and he lays hands upon the woman. Now, I, we can only imagine what this woman may have been through up to now in her life. Um, Imagine suffering with a condition like this for 18 years. I'm sure she's exhausted all opportunities to try to get this thing fixed. Remember the woman who had the issue of blood? I think it was a 12-year issue of blood. Remember, she's the one who says, if I can just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, I'll be healed. And sure enough, she touches and she's healed and Jesus then calls her out and all the rest. Remember, while he's on his way to try to heal Jairus' daughter, who actually dies in the meantime, and then he resurrects her. Okay, so all of this happens. But... Remember, on that occasion, this woman with the 12-year issue of blood, we're told that she endured much at the hands of many physicians and spent all that she had without getting better. Some people might be able to identify with that in their own personal life. Endured much at the hands of physicians. <laughs> so she's, she's gone through a lot of stuff, and she's used like her life savings trying to get better, and no one was able to make her better. I believe it most likely this woman had similarly sought help from others, perhaps herbal remedies, perhaps medicines, perhaps she had gone through physical therapies, but all to no avail. And now Jesus says to this woman with this 18-year disability, woman, you have been loosed from your disability. He lays his hands upon her and immediately she straightens. See, Spurgeon says it so well. 18 years 
of despondency must be a frightful affliction. And yet, there is an escape out of it. For though the devil may take 18 years to forge a chain, it does not take our blessed Lord 18 minutes to break it. Build, build thy dungeons, O fiend of hell, and lay the foundations deep, and place the the courses of granite so fast together that none could stir a stone of thy fabric. But when he comes, thy master, who will destroy all thy works, he doth but speak, and like the unsubstantial fabric of a vision, thy Bastille vanishes into thin air. Eighteen years of melancholy do not prove that Jesus cannot set the captive free. They only offer him an opportunity for displaying his gracious power. Amen. You see, what's impossible for man is not impossible for God. This woman's 18 years of bondage are removed in an instant. There are no incurable cases with Jesus. What this woman and all others were incapable of alleviating, Jesus heals in a moment. What a blessed reality it is to know that Jesus offers something even greater than physical healing, doesn't He? While there are some who are healed physically for a time, we all know that we're going to face with death one day. There's a much greater healing that Jesus offers. And it's wonderful to know that while the devil might have spent 30 of your years plunging you into the depths of sin and depravity, God can save you in an instant. It doesn't take him 30 years to undo what Satan has done. No matter how much sin you've engaged in, no matter how long you've you've drunk of this world's pleasures, no matter how plunged into the depths of rebellion you have been and lived in, Jesus can rescue you. And His rescue does not require much time. It requires an immediate moment. That's it. Jesus is capable of saving those who, and this is the case with all of us, who cannot save ourselves. We're incapable of alleviating our fallen condition. We can't straighten our crookedness. We can't unbend our bendedness. But Christ can undo it in a moment. All the failures up to this point don't prove that he's unable to do it. They only give him a forum whereby he can display his awesome power as he undoes all of the wicked deeds of the devil and all of the wicked deeds that you've performed in the flesh. You must come to like this woman. Yes, completely incapable of solving your problems on your own. Completely dependent upon a Savior to write you. Certainly, acts of compassion are especially fitted for the Lord's day. Aren't they? Secondly, the promotion of freedom is especially fitted for the Lord's day. The promotion of freedom is especially fitted for the Lord's day. Freeing the captives is seen here too. I mean, Jesus meets the objection of the synagogue ruler head on. And he answers him, even though the ruler is kind of only implicitly dealing with Jesus. He's correcting the people, not Jesus in his remarks. Jesus points out the hypocrisy that's present in the religious system, which has instruction that allows for people to unbind their oxen and donkeys from the stall and lead them away to give them a drink. Because that actually was placed within the necessity category. Well, isn't it necessary to feed one's animals? So we've got to do that. And Jesus doesn't argue against the necessity of this, but what he does argue against is their inability to place this woman in the same category. Isn't it interesting the exact word that he uses here? Look at, look at verse 16. This woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? 
Well, the NAS is sadly missing what's so poignant in the Greek here. It says literally, it is necessary. Is it not necessary for this woman to be unbound on the Sabbath day? Jesus wants to put this act in the necessity category. And this argument, again, is one from lesser to greater. If you think it's necessary to free an animal, then how much more appropriate is it to free this woman, this daughter of Abraham, from her bondage? To show more concern for an animal on the Sabbath than for a person on the Sabbath is to uh, completely rail against the created order. It's a reversal of the created order. Jesus explains, this woman whom Satan has bound, and it literally reads this way, right in the middle of it. Satan is bound, behold, ten and eight years. Now, when we're introduced to this woman at the very beginning of the passage, it says 18. But here, it's broken up by Jesus. He says, behold, ten and eight years. Why that? He wants to emphasize just how long this woman has been in torment. And what he says to these religious leaders is she's not waiting one more moment. <laughs> You're saying i got to put off healing this woman for another day? She's been in this condition for ten and eight years. You have little compassion on her. You have more compassion on beasts than you do on this woman. Calvin said, while men are restrained from following their own employments on the Sabbath day, how unreasonable is it that the grace of God should be limited in this manner? (laughs) Remember, God rests from his creative work. Does God completely cease from all labor, all work? If he did, nothing would exist, right? Because we know that everything is upheld by his power. On the seventh day on the Sabbath, God rests from what he was doing in his creative work, but it doesn't mean that he ceased from acting or doing deeds of goodness and kindness and all the rest. His grace is still present. And so must our deeds of kindness and compassion and our promotion of freedom on the Sabbath. I mean, the Sabbath should be especially fitted for such things like this, for things of compassion, for things that demonstrate freedom has come to mankind, for the destroying of the works of the devil. We don't know exactly what the connection is between Satan's activity and this woman's back condition, but this is a unique situation because she's described as having a spirit of disablement. By the way, uh, red flag here for prosperity gospel preachers that would want to make every sickness some demon. Um, they love to go to this passage to do it. But I just want to note with you that this is like a rare case in the description of Jesus' healings and exorcisms. Almost always, the exorcisms that he does and the healings he does are very separated. Here's a unique situation where somehow in the language of the passage they're united together. He's described as having had this, this spirit for 18 years. And then when Jesus describes what he just did, he says that Satan has bound her for 18 long years, for 10 and 8 years. Shouldn't she be released from this bond on the Sabbath day? There's been lots of discussion as to what the connection exactly is here. Um, some want to go with more of a physical description. In other words, saying that this is some sort of fusing of her vertebrae in the back of her back. Or maybe she had some neurological issue that caused her muscles to spasm putting her in this kind of condition, some sort of scoliosis of some sort. Um, But maybe it's just a result. The connection to Satan is in that general sense that we refer to all of this fallen world. We now have to deal with disease and sickness and all the rest. And so he could be connected that way. Another way could be a little bit more explicit way. Perhaps she had been demon-possessed at some time and threw her into some sort of condition where then there she is with her back forever altered. We're not told explicitly what the situation is. Remember, even kind of a parallel perhaps might be here with the experience of Job, who 
uh, Satan was allowed to wreak havoc on, on Job's life. Um, you remember after his kids are, are killed and animals and livestock are removed, then Satan says, yeah, but you haven't let me touch Job's body yet. And then God says, go ahead, but don't take his life. Remember, and the boils come all over Job's body. So there's a real sense in which you say that specific outbreak of boils was a direct correlation to satanic activity on Job's, on Job's life. And so similarly, the debate rages as to the connection of exactly how is Satan connected to this woman's back ailment. But regardless, whichever way you land on the thing, there is a connection. (laughs) And we know that ultimately all of disease and all of sickness and all of the disorder and dysfunction that we find in this life is ultimately due to the fall. And we know that Satan had a prime role in deceiving the woman in the Garden of Eden leading up to the fall of mankind. So Jesus' work here simultaneously, as he frees the woman, you know what he's also doing? He's destroying the works of the devil. He's destroying the work of the devil while he's freeing this woman. And so it is in salvation. Christ's work both frees the sinner and defeats Satan. 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Freeing the captives is fitted for the Lord's day. And what's the effect of being freed from this bondage? The crooked are straightened. This woman immediately experiences the benefits that come with being freed from Satan's yoke. She was straightened. That which was distorted now is righted. A woman who is crippled by Satan's cruelty is now cured by Christ's compassion. We who are perverted and twisted by sin can be put back in right relationship with God through Christ's work. We can be forgiven and freed from the penalty of sin and slavery to sin. And one day, we look forward to the day, where we'll be freed from the very presence of sin. When we who are in Christ will see Christ and will be made like Him, for we'll see Him as He is. That beautiful, what's called the beatific vision. We look forward to that day. You see, disability and disease, it's been said this way, disability and disease is a normal part of life in an abnormal world. Disability and disease is a normal part of life in an abnormal world world. You see, these are only a normal experience because we live in a fallen world. Without the fall, there is no sickness. There is no sin, obviously. There is no sickness. There is no disease. There is no death. The wages of sin is death. And we'll all meet with death one day. You see, disability and disease and death normal part of an abnormal world because we live in a fallen world. But here's the good news. One day, all things will be set right. All crooked things will be straightened. One day, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk again. I, remember, I don't remember who it is that said this. Someone who is, who is blind and this person, he or she, said that they're just thankful the first thing that they will see is Christ. You see, one day all these disabilities will be done away with. Those hurting backs, friends, will be gone. That loss of hair, friends, will be gone. We'll be given new bodies. We'll be granted a new life. All the crooked things will be straightened. It may not be right now, but upon the return of Christ and the establishment of the new heavens and new earth, when this perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, our perfect new bodies will not be wrecked by sin. And so no more will disease and death and sickness be a normal part of life. They'll be removed from our experience. 
And we know that creation itself groans for the coming day when all things will be righted. It hopes for when it will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Romans 8, 20-22. You see, acts of compassion and things that promote freedom are especially fitted for the Lord's day. And third and last, joy and delight in God are especially fitted for the Lord's day. And look at how Jesus... Jesus' response here, two things happen in this, in this account. And we see real quick, the, the line is drawn, and we see the unseen by the way in which these people respond to Christ. What might have been questionable as to who it is that really loves Jesus, loves God, becomes very clear by their response to Jesus' activity here. After Jesus offers this rebuke to the hypocrites, we're told in verse 17 that they were put to shame. They were humiliated for their brazen attack against Jesus, his ministry, and their lack of concern and compassion for this woman. Jesus just highlighted their issue, right? You care more about oxen and donkeys than you care about this woman. And they're left speechless. They're humiliated and they're left speechless. I'm sure in that moment that synagogue official wished he hadn't said anything. And so it will ultimately be. Those who reject Jesus Christ, the only Savior of mankind, will ultimately be judged by Jesus. Acts 17:31. It's interesting. Passage in the Old Testament, Psalm 118, verse 22, which is repeatedly quoted in the New Testament. No less than at least five times, no less than five times, this passage is quoted in the New Testament. The line is this. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone here's the option with Jesus right you either come to him in humble confession of your sin crying for him to save you asking that he show his grace and mercy toward you or you'll meet him one day as your judge 2 Thessalonians 1 8 and 9 dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. You see, Jesus silences and shames arrogant rebels. But what does He do with humble believers? He evokes joy and praise from them. To the complete opposite end of the spectrum, we now see this woman, and note this, as she was straightened by Christ, what is, his, what is her immediate action? She begins glorifying God. She immediately begins glorifying God. This woman knew that her healing could only come by the grace of God. And while there's certainly a sense in which Jesus saw this woman, called to her, she approached Jesus. He laid his hands on her. She believed that Christ, Christ when he said that he had told her that she was free. She responds by glorifying God. She recognizes in all of this that it is God's work alone that straightened her back. It's God's work alone that freed her from her bondage. And so it is with salvation. While a man must believe and he must repent, the only sinner who ever does so is the one whom the Holy Spirit has granted repentance and faith. Salvation is by God's grace alone. And as a result, he receives all the glory. Only God could straighten this woman and only God can save a sinner. I pray that we would respond with the same wholehearted praise for the riches of God's grace as this woman did on that occasion. There's a sense in which this woman's prolonged ailment 
just prepares her for incredible rejoicing, doesn't it? The deeper her sorrow had been, the sweeter now was her song. Have you ever noticed that before? Sometimes it's not until something is kind of stripped from you that you recognize just how valuable that was. Sometimes it's when our health fails that we recognize just how thankful we are for the days when we are able to function. She knew what a blessed gift she had been given. You see, even the working of the devil is turned by our sovereign Lord to rebound to God's glory. Because now all those 18 years of pain have been removed. And this woman has given great reason to rejoice in the Lord. At the end of the account, we also read that the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by Christ. You see, compassionate acts centering on freeing those in bondage brings cause for great rejoicing. What better activity could be considered for the Lord's day? Now, the Sabbath was never given to be engaged in as a loveless, lifeless tradition nor as a way to judge others. It was given to Israel as a blessed opportunity to specially focus upon worshiping God and serving others. This is the reason why God rails against Israel when they're not serving others and they act out these things as just outward forms and rituals that have no heart or love for God or love for others. The New Testament, though, provides further explanation in Colossians 2. Important statement made here in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Listen, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Don't miss this. Ultimately, our Sabbath rest is found in Christ. This observance was a foreshadowing of the beautiful spiritual blessing that would be ours through Jesus. The Sabbath found its fulfillment in Christ. You see, everyone who's in Christ experiences a perpetual Sabbath rest. Jesus implored the people, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, while the requirement, per se, of the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ, we can still learn from the theological principle behind the Sabbath. A day of rest from secular employments for the special purpose of worshiping and enjoying God, showing compassion for others, and promoting freedom is a fitting expression of a Christian's love for his or her Lord. And while every day ought to be lived to the glory of God and for the good of our fellow mankind, these are certainly fitting activities for our celebration of the Lord's Day. Philip, I close with a quote from Philip Ryken, who provides a fitting summary of what constitutes a glorious use of the Lord's Day. We do not have the power to cure people the way that Jesus did, but by our love and compassion, we can be agents of his saving work. We can give people a healing encounter with his grace. 
we can also prepare them for his everlasting kingdom where death is destroyed. The devil is defeated and every disability of the body and deformity of the soul is cured by Christ. Look forward to that day, church. All God's people said, Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the time we could have around your word this morning. Thank you for the reminder of how the Lord's Day should cause us to contemplate the glorious finished work of Christ who laid down his life as a ransom for many and then rose again conquering sin and death. We're thankful for those who are in Christ. We know the first death doesn't hold any fear for on us because we recognize that we won't see the second. And Lord, we look forward to the day when all crooked things are straightened. We glory in Your power. What seems impossible to us is not impossible for You. And I pray even in these moments, should there be someone here, even, even one person here, who would admit that they are lost in their sins, they've lived out the lusts of their flesh, they've indulged the pleasures of this world, and they've lived without any love or care or concern for You and Your glory. I pray You'd bring conviction on their hearts, that You would humble them and break them and bring them low, that then You might grant them repentance and faith, turning from sin, turning to Christ. You would save them, draw them into Yourself, and grant them eternal life. Lord, we know in this present day we will struggle with this ongoing spiritual warfare. So please fit us with Your armor. Keep us ever ready. Cause our feet to stand firm. And may we as ambassadors of Yours proclaim the glorious news of the Gospel. Declaring freedom to those who are in slavery. And Lord, we will rejoice in You for only You can bring to pass these glorious things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.